Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, fam. It's Amara Jones. Welcome to the Translash Podcast, a show where we tell trans stories to save trans lives, discussing news, politics, and culture in a way that is deeply relevant for our community, or at least we hope so, and those who care about us. I have to tell y'all that I am thrilled to be back with you for our regular podcast conversation. You can clearly hear it in my voice. You know, those are the types of conversations we like to have here. They spotlight the incredible insights that trans people have and how we're reimagining and remaking the world around us. Now, we here at Translash Podcast departed from this normal format over the summer because we thought it was so important to reveal the fact that the forces which managed to introduce nearly 130 anti-trans bills in almost 40 states didn't come out of nowhere. We laid that all out in our special series, The Anti-Trans Hate Machine, A Plot Against Equality, and we're so grateful that you embraced it. Your comments and positive feedback kept us going through what were some really difficult moments and talking about some really tough things. So I know I speak for everyone at Translash, however, when I say that leaving behind the strange world of dark money, secret organizations, and extreme religious ideology to come back into the light of our regular podcast is truly making our fall. This week, in our first week back since June, we're diving into a topic that's been on everyone's minds for more than a year. We're talking about COVID-19, that seemingly never-ending story. I know things haven't been looking great as the Delta variant surges across the country. It leaves many of us looking for ways to protect ourselves. But the good news is that there is someone from our very own community who is now responsible for helping us get out of this mess. It's the person joining us this week, the incredible Dr. Rachel Levine. She's the Assistant Secretary of Health at the U.S. Department for Health and Human Services. And that is what we're trying to work against is this complacency that the pandemic is in the past. But let's start out as we always do with a little bit of trans joy. One thing that brings me joy is trans people supporting each other in a time when we need it most. A wonderful organization which does just that is Trans Lifeline. They run an anonymous, confidential hotline where you can always call and speak with a trans person. This is especially important to remember during this Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. Trans Lifeline also helps support our well-being in other ways. Trans Lifeline raises money to help trans people with hormone replacement therapy, name changes, and other essential services. And most of it goes to the most marginalized in our community, like those who are incarcerated. Since 2015, 
Trans Lifeline has answered over 100,000 calls and raised over a million dollars. Here's Yana Kalu, the Director of Public Relations at Trans Lifeline. You know, we believe that having affirming trans community and contact with other trans people is what makes our lives feel possible and what prevents crises in the first place. So we always say, like, you know, we don't define what a crisis is and isn't, and we want people to call whether they're in crisis or they just need a resource or need someone to talk to or just, like, took their first shot of estrogen and, like, want to celebrate that with another trans person. So we're essentially here to talk to any trans or questioning person who wants to talk to a trans peer for any reason. Yana, you, and everyone else at Trans Lifeline are trans joy. With that, let's get to it. Dr. Rachel Levine, Assistant Secretary of Health at the Department of Health and Human Services, made history earlier this year as the first trans person to be confirmed to a public office by the United States Senate. In this role, she is at the center of coordinating the nation's response to the coronavirus epidemic. But Dr. Levine is not new to this. Prior to joining the Biden administration, she was the first Secretary of Health for the state of Pennsylvania and the first trans person to hold that position. There, she led that state through the first year of the COVID crisis. Before her time as a public servant, Dr. Levine was a professor of pediatrics and psychiatry at the Penn State College of Medicine. And if that wasn't enough, she's held posts which include the vice chair for clinical affairs for the Department of Pediatrics and chief of the Division of Adolescent Medicine and Eating Disorders at the Penn State Hershey Medical Center. So it's no surprise that I am beyond excited to talk with Dr. Levine and to get everything that she has to tell us about where we are in the epidemic and how it impacts trans people specifically and the state of our healthcare system more broadly. Dr. Levine, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. I appreciate that. All of us over the last year have gone through a historic time with COVID, regardless of if you are a health professional leading a state health department or at the national level or individually. And I'm wondering, as a person who's had a unique role in this moment in leading us through the COVID crisis, where you think from all of your experiences and your position right now in Washington, are we in the epidemic? Where are we in COVID right now? Well, thank you for that question. It's it's really a pleasure to be here. Uh, COVID-19 has certainly been the, the biggest public health crisis that the nation and the world has seen in over 100 years. And it has impacted every country and everyone in our way of life. I think that there are a couple lessons of COVID-19. One is that we are truly all interconnected at a national level and at a global level. And the other is the importance of public health. Uh, local, state, national, and international public health in terms of keeping us all healthy. You know, under President Biden's leadership, we have made so much progress in our battle against COVID-19 over the last uh, five months or more. You can see the light at the end of the tunnel for our nation in terms of COVID-19, but we are not there yet. And it is very important that people not be complacent 
that they don't take this for granted. And our ticket out is through our safe and effective and very important vaccines. So my most important message of the day is that everyone, 12 and above, should be getting their COVID-19 vaccinations. That is our ticket out. A part of, it seems, where we are in the epidemic right now are reaching hard-hit communities and communities where the lack of access to a whole host of things makes vaccinations hard to get. And among those are, as you know, trans communities, communities of color, those communities that are the most marginalized of the marginalized. And I'm wondering what um, the plan is from where you sit to begin to reach those communities. There are two challenges, um, as you've been discussing. I mean, one is working past um, vaccine hesitancy making sure that everyone has the information they need uh, to make a decision about these safe and effective vaccines. And and we are working uh, through media, we're working through social media uh, to do that. And we're also working through our COVID-19 community core, where we have local trusted community members and stakeholders giving the message about the safety and the effectiveness of the vaccine. And that includes um, members of our LGBTQ plus and trans community. In addition, access is an issue and we are doing everything we possibly can to increase access to vulnerable and marginalized communities, including uh, communities of color uh, and LGBTQ plus and trans communities. So, you know, we are making sure that that the vaccines are available uh, at doctor's offices, at pharmacies, at community health centers, other community venues, whether it's a barbershop or a baseball game, making sure that there are still small, medium and large venues where people can get the vaccine. There are community programs. Uh, for example, uh, I, I was just actually talking with Dr. Stanford in Philadelphia, and I actually went and visited her program. And she, she runs the COVID-19 Black Consortium in Philadelphia. And they are going door to door to try to get uh, individuals vaccinated who otherwise would not know about vaccines or have access. And I think in some way, some communities, that's what we need to do. You mentioned the push to expand access to try to reach communities where access is difficult to deal with vaccine hesitancy, to do things like meet people in barbershops and other places in their communities that when, where it would make it easier. But I'm wondering how you're also feeling about what you might be seeing from where you sit, which is perhaps a growing complacency around the need to get a vaccine at all, Many people, as I'm coming across, are talking about the pandemic in the United States, even in the past tense. I'm wondering, as a public health official, as you're dealing with this push that's still needed to get essentially half the population vaccinated, at the same time when there is this been there, done that kind of attitude that might be increasing in the public. Well, that is what we're that is what we're talking about, and that is what we're trying to work against is this complacency that the pandemic is in the past. And so it is critically important that people not take this for granted and, and think of the of the pandemic as something that happened last year, uh, especially with what is now known as the Delta variant. And so the variants uh, that have been seen throughout the world and throughout the country now have Greek 
names to avoid stigmatizing the country where they may have developed. Uh, There is evidence that the Delta variant is more transmissible. It's more infectious so that more people could get it and that it is uh, more virulent, which means that the, the case of COVID could be more severe, leading to more hospitalizations and possibly more deaths. Now, the good news is that our vaccines, such as the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine, are protected against the Delta variant. The challenging news is that communities and states that are uh, that are behind in terms of their vaccination rates are vulnerable to this Delta variant. And that would include, of course, members of our LGBTQ plus and trans community who have not been vaccinated. And so we should not be complacent because this we can again, we can see our our recovery ahead of us, but we are not there yet. And we have to continue this push against both vaccine hesitancy and then also make sure that we make the vaccines accessible to our community. Yeah. And I think the bottom line is that it's not over. One of the things that I think was a really pivotal moment in your hearing was the questioning from Senator Rand Paul about trans healthcare, specifically trans healthcare for youth. I think that most people found that line of questioning extremely aggressive. Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. And I think that we were all, and I know I personally was all blown away by your stoicism. I think that I probably would have turned over the table, which is is probably the best um, reaction. And one of the things that you kept saying to Rand Paul was, you know, if you, let's, why don't we talk about this in a, in a different setting? I'm happy to take you through this because it's intricate. And as you mentioned, and as many other people that I've spoken to have mentioned, it is a complicated area of healthcare. And there's actually 40 or 50 years of research behind it and that there are now medical bodies, including the American Medical Association, that have standards around it. And so I'm wondering if you did have that conversation with Senator Rand Paul, what would you say? And in general, what's your thinking as a healthcare professional when you see these bills? Sure. Um, so that offer stands, and I am still very pleased to, uh, to to go to Senator Paul's office and discuss with him and his staff transgender medical um, standards of care, including the standards of care for transgender youth. Um, as you mentioned, they, they are very well established through WPATH, the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. There's a U.S. arm called U.S. PATH, um, and then other medical bodies um, uh, such as the Endocrine Society, which has published articles and standards for, for, for medical care for our community. And those standards continue to evolve uh, according to, uh, to medical research because they are, they are evidence-based. 
that's the type of thing that I would emphasize is that is that this is a well accepted uh, medical field that the the people practicing this type of medicine for, for youth include pediatricians and adolescent medicine specialists such as myself as well as pediatric endocrinologists as well as uh, you know uh, of course nurses and nurse practitioners and uh, psychologists and therapists that you know the care for children is often led at our our nation's uh, fantastic children's hospitals. I know in Pennsylvania, uh, you know, where I was previously, that there are excellent clinics at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh, as well as Penn State. These are not people who are winging it. These are experienced medical professionals providing this care. Often, also, I would highlight uh, the role of, of LGBTQ medical centers and health centers that often provide this care for often children and adults. Whitman Walker in Washington, D.C., the Mazzoni Center in Philadelphia. These bills that you're talking about are, are, are very concerning and very challenging. Transgender youth are vulnerable and, and they're at risk of bullying and harassment um, and significant challenges. And, and we should be advocating for them. We should be nurturing these vulnerable youth as opposed to passing bills that prevent their participation in activities and sports, and the most egregious bills limiting their access to this potentially life-saving medical treatment and gender affirmation care. President Biden is firmly in favor of, of our community. He has spoken about this publicly, including um, at an address to Congress. We have activities throughout the administration and all of the departments and, and, and robust activities at the Department of Health and Human Services to work on advocacy and on LGBTQ policy changes that impact um, transgender medicine and the care of trans youth and adults. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely right in terms of the fact that this is life-saving care and I that's well established. You know, we've done a limited series called The Anti-Trans Hate Machine, A Plot Against Equality, a four-part series that looks into this. And when we spoke to doctors who treat trans adolescents in states like Oklahoma, and when we have spoken to their parents across the country, mostly in the South as well, South and Southwest and Midwest, everyone talks about how complicated these decisions are, how intricate they are, how many adults are involved in them. And they are all totally shaken by the idea that the government would then come in and be yet another factor in making these decisions. And it's a powerful thing I've learned by, by doing this this process. One of the things that I'm curious about being then in this moment as a trailblazing doctor, because you are that um, in your own right, as you mentioned, starting in pediatrics and doing a lot of groundbreaking work there in New York and in Pennsylvania, then a groundbreaking trans person as a groundbreaking physician. I'm wondering how you experience this moment of being this person who has had an amazing opportunity by the moment that we're living in, which is emblematic of great hope. And then at the same time, being in the middle of the storm uh, in the trans backlash, specifically around medical care. And I'm wondering how that, how you experience that as, as a person. Sure. Well, you know, I, I am, I'm just so excited and, and uh, proud uh, to be uh, nominated by President Biden and to be confirmed by the Senate with a bipartisan vote, uh, and also humbled 
um, by the opportunity to, to serve in, in, the, in, in President Biden and Vice President Harris's administration. I also w- was very proud to serve in, in Governor Wolf's administration um, in Pennsylvania. Um, and I hope that, um, th- that uh, you know, I can be a, a figure that helps people understand our community better. Um, you know, trans individuals, the trans community, are, we're, we're human, we're people like everybody else. And, you know, and, and uh, I'm proud to serve. Um, and I have always been proud to serve in medicine, helping, you know, teens and families, children do education and clinical research. And uh, now in, in public health and public service, um, you know, just hope to hope to contribute. I stand on the shoulders of those who came before. You know, we all do. And some of those people we know and some of the people we don't know because they had to work in the shadows. I, I'm humbled by that, uh, by, again, by this opportunity. I hope that we can get past people's fear of what they do, have not experienced. I think people sometimes fear what, what they don't know. And hopefully we can show that trans people, you know, we serve in, in the government, we serve in public health, and we're just trying to really uh, achieve the mission of the uh, Department of Health and Human Services, which is really help uh, the health and health care of everyone. I am very, very pleased to serve in, in that uh, visible role um, and hope that my visibility helps our community. What is your advice to people who face being in unique roles like you, being trans, being trailblazers, but then also having opportunity and being the focal point of sometimes hostility. And I mean, I've watched press conferences where you've had to correct people and demand that they stop misgendering you. And so I'm wondering what advice you have to people who may end up in positions like you. What, What will you say to them? Well, you know, I think that people will end up in positions. You know, Vice President Harris said that, you know, uh, that she may be the first, but she won't be the last. And I think that that's true of myself as well. I think that there will be many more trans individuals which will have this opportunity to serve um, in the in the federal government. I, I think one is uh, it's important to be humble and grateful. Uh, and I am very grateful for the support of our community and the, the support of uh, that I have received by uh, the, the administration and by by my my colleagues here at Health and Human Services, and you can see that you know in Pride Month, I think it's important uh, to keep a sense of self and not sort of judge yourself by what others say, because um, you know I've received a fair amount of pushback, and um, I understand that, and I am able to compartmentalize that and not let it bother me. I think it's important uh, for for people to do that because you know we're bound to get we're get we're bound to get pushback, um, and to keep going. You know, for those of us fortunate enough to be able to to be in these visible positions. Um, I think it's important uh, to, to, to keep going. And I'm just so proud to represent our community. Well, I know that we're proud to have you as a member of our community. And I think that we hope that you take your own advice and to keep going. I know that so many of our listeners will and appreciate the example that you have and wish you all the best in leading the country through some very difficult times politically and both health-wise and know that your voice and leadership is needed. Well, thank thank you so much. It's a pleasure to speak with you and I hope to do it again sometime. Absolutely, absolutely. That was Dr. Rachel Levine, the Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services, the first trans person to be nominated and then to be voted upon positively in a Senate-confirmed position. 
If you liked what you heard, please go to Apple Podcasts to rate and review us. It really helps y'all, so go do it. You can listen to Translash wherever you get your podcast. Please check us out on the web at translash.org to sign up for our weekly newsletter. It's awesome, and you get a video from me each week, so go do that. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Translash Media. Like us on Facebook and tell your friends. The Translash podcast is produced by Translash Media. The Translash team includes Oliver Ash Klein, Montana Thomas, Jay McAuliffe, and Yannick Ike Mirko. Our intern is Marana Munson-Burke. Alexander Charles Adams does the sound editing for our show. Our digital strategy is handled by Daniela Cabestrano. The music you heard was composed by Ben Draghi and also courtesy of CZK Records. So what am I looking forward to? Um... There's so many things to look forward to in the fall, right? But the thing that I'm looking forward to is the fact that um, I am developing a four-part course called Beyond a Hashtag, which looks at ways that we can actually operationalize, looks for ways that we can actually operationalize a lot of the values that people have um, kind of uncovered within themselves in society that they want to manifest around all forms of justice, including racial, gender, disability. The list goes on, and it should go on because we've got a lot of stuff to fix. It's going to be on a platform called Guidness, um, which has a series of courses for people um, on a variety of things. So make sure that you sign up for it. You can find out how to sign up for it by going to my IG page, um, and there will be a link there, um, and also on my website. But I think that, like you all, I've just done a lot of thinking about what did it all mean and how when we eventually go back to um, some sort of more communal interactions, how are we going to carry these values in with us? And that's essentially what I'm going to talk about. So um, make sure that you um, sign up for it. And you can sign up right now just to get more information on it. And we'll tell you when we're actually going to release it, which will be you know over the next couple of months. But make sure that you go do that. So I'm excited about this course more than a hashtag. We've been working really hard on it over the summer in addition to everything else, um, not to mention um, our world. It can be broken, but the change starts with us. And that's what we're going to talk about is how, like, in our daily lives, we can make things better. <laughs>